Restaurant Unstoppable episode 594 with Chef Scott Gottlich. You never want to make an emotional or a charged decision. You need to regroup. And all decisions should be unemotional. You shouldn't have emotion tied to business decisions. As much as I don't, you don't want to throw a restaurant in a business, it is a business. Are you ready for It Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash Stoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Scott Gottlich. Scott, are you feeling unstoppable today? I was born unstoppable. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to hear. Originating from Dallas, Texas, Chef Scott Gottlich studied at, at Oklahoma University and Johnson and Wales University. After graduating, Gottlich jumped between the East and West Coast, working for some great mentors, including Tim Goodell, uh, Eric Repair, and Chris Mueller. With considerable experience under his belt, Gottlich returned to Dallas, Texas, where he took his first role as executive chef at Lola. After three years of getting familiar with the Dallas market, Gottlich opened his first concept, Bijou, since since Gottlich has opened two additional locations, uh, which include his latest concept, 18th and Vine. That's where we are today, located in Dallas, Texas. I cannot wait to dive into your story and to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, I'm going to give I'm going to give two if that's OK. Please. First is make it nice or make it twice. Ooh, I like right. It. So you have to take the time to do it right the first time so you don't have to do it twice. And, and that boils down to work ethic integrity and all of the above. Um, and you, and you have to be really studious to get to those, to those, to those points. I dig it. You know, and, uh, in the kitchen, the second one is the chef is always right. Ooh, so what, how does that resonate with you? What's the meaning behind that? I mean, pretty straightforward, but pull back a layer for me. I mean, it's a brigade system, so, um, you don't have time to debate or discuss or, you know, Save get up on a stage and, and throw out some theology or anything like, no, it's, it's go time. It, the chef is right. I dig it. So bring us to where you knew you were going to commit your life to food and beverage because you went to school originally and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Oklahoma university, was it social or what? I can't remember what the, I saw it some, well, it's, it started a little bit before that. I, I graduated from high school. I was um, really into wrestling, um, big in wrestling. And I went to Syracuse university for two years. Um, 
I went there because the coach there was good at what I wasn't. So I think it's real important to know your weaknesses and try to, to, to work on those or know your strengths and play off your weaknesses. What was your weakness? I'm, I'm assuming it was related to wrestling. Yeah. But what, I wrestled a little re- bit back in the day, so I'm, yeah. I'm just curious. So um, I was really good on my feet. Um, I could take people down and take them to their back, but I felt like I wanted to get better on the mat mm. at grappling. And Gene Mills um, was pound for pound the best wrestler in the eight, 1980s. Um, in fact, he was part of the boycott of the 1980 Olympics and didn't get to go, but he was unbelievable. And he was, his motto was pin to win. Mm. And he would let anyone, not anyone, but basically let people take him down and then he could do things on the mat that other people couldn't do and pin him. So I felt like I wanted to concentrate on what I perceived as my weakness and, and learn from the best. Um, I was there for two years and um, unfortunately it didn't work out exactly the way that I wanted. Uh, but he, was, uh, he did the right thing after two years and, and signed an unconditional release and I, I transferred to OU. Um, when I went to Syracuse, I was a pre-med. Um, doctors run in my family, so I was pre-med. Uh, took all the way through Orgo and all the, the math and everything and loved it. In fact, I ended up about six, maybe nine, but I think six hours away from getting my chemistry minor. Um, when I transferred to OU, I decided that I wanted to be able to have the option to be home with a family. And I didn't want it to be someone's life or death that was involved. And the types of medicine I was interested in was life or death. Okay. Right? I wasn't going to be, you know, anything but those. So uh, when I transferred, I was MIS, computer science. And then I realized, God, I don't want to be in front of a computer for 25 (laughs) years. So um, I was business for a minute and then I switched to history and I'm a history major. And, uh, and, and, you know, I really enjoyed it. I love studying kind of what happened over time and how it does repeat itself. And we make some of the same mistakes and how important history is. Um, But with graduating with a history degree, I was debating between law school and culinary school and I had um, done enough work and clerked in some law offices to uh, run a practice LSAT and I was afraid if I took the test and applied to law schools that I would never, once I went to law school, I would never go to culinary school um, and I was interested in, in food. I, if I look back, I was kind of always involved in food service, whether it was bagging groceries, first job in a kitchen was a subway artist. Um, nice. And then, uh, I love how you threw artists yeah. on there. And I loved eating. Like I was the most adventurous in my family. Like I liked going to the places where you had the multi courses, you know, 13 year old wanting to go have, uh, in the eighties, like a, a poached dill salmon with, you know, just elevated kind of cuisine. So it seemed like fun and it felt like, Hey, let's check this out. Let's see if I like this. And I'm not in a coat and tie. I'm not in front of a computer. Worst case scenario. I do it. It's not my thing. And then I can go to law school. Well, there happened to be a culinary school in Vail, Colorado at the time, which has since moved to Denver, um, Johnson and Wales for those with a, a bachelor's degree. So it was attractive because I wasn't with 18 year olds, first time away from home, living it up. Like I'd already done that. I'd already been in college. Yeah. I'd already done that. And I was a little bit more serious about what I wanted to do. It just seemed kind of exciting to jump into it. So, um, we were the last class out of Vail. But it was an extraordinary experience because it was a mixed group of 23, 24-year-olds or maybe 22 all the way to middle age that were either making changes in their vocation 
or just excited about doing something neat. So it was everything from working the stock markets to, you know, real estate and then jumping into to culinary. It was a great experience. And from the first class, I loved it. I found something that I was just as passionate about as, as to me, wrestling. Um, and that was really exciting. So the, I think the big thing I pulled from your story so far, the thing that really uh, had the biggest impact on me was just the value of going and surrounding yourself with the best, identifying your strengths and weaknesses, and going to surround yourself with the people that will lift you up wherever you think you're, you're weak or vice versa, going to finding out what you're good at and then going to the best to be even better, right? Um, so wrestling is a very independent sport and you're going from like that intense independent sport. Ultimately there's a team and your match, you win your match, the points all go towards like the, the, the team. But how was that? How, how was the kitchen for you for somebody, which is such a team sport? I mean, I guess I see the similarities where you got to do your thing really well. And the combined picture is the, the team. Um, but what was that transition? Like going from working in a kitchen to having real, like, uh, I don't know, I mean, I guess kitchens is technical work. I, I'm struggling to find the right the right words, but it was well, kind there, of a pivot for you. Well, there's a lot of technique that I think that goes into if you're going to do things right, and it's not sloppy. Whether it's your cuts or how you balance the sauce, and really, to me, it's um, you know, an equation when you balance things and how you put a dish together. But no, I think it's really similar. I mean, I think it's a team atmosphere. A kitchen is very team like. Um, it has the same kind of camaraderie. Um, it's very intense when you're cooking on a line and you're running a kitchen that's busy. Um, you're held accountable for your part. It's different than a team sport. And the fact that I always felt like your station is your station, you're on your own. And a lot of the places that I worked at, which were very high end, um, Michelin kind of, kind of places when I got started, you were responsible for everything on your station. So it wasn't like someone was helping you put together your dish the same way. Um, that it was like a team sport where someone's doing vegetables and someone's doing meat and you're putting it together and someone else is plating it up. No, you did it all. You brought it to the pass. Chef looked at it. Year and a or threw it in your face, whatever yeah. they're going to do. Um, but it was, it's very similar, you know, and the rush of all of that, although not exactly the same as a wrestling match or whatnot, there's some similarities for sure. So you, you event, you didn't go to uh, school to study law. So there was a, I wish I did sometimes. <laughs> right. yeah. I don't blame you. Uh, but what was it that made you continue with food and beverage? Well, was there an experience or a moment or when you were faced with a decision, why did you decide this path? Well, when I, when I was going through culinary school, I worked at a restaurant at the same time. So a lot of us worked, um, we had culinary school in the morning we were done by like one or two and then we worked till like 11 o'clock at night. So like you put in your time and like, it was a lot of fun and of course it was veil. So every now and then you got to go skiing and over mm -hmm. the summer you got to go fishing and stuff like that. But, um, I don't know. It was just, I felt good. I felt comfortable. I felt fulfilled. I felt like this is something that I don't know that much about. I still don't know that much about it. And the fact that you always need to be pushing yourself yeah. to take that next step, you know? So it was, it was exciting because it was um, something that I felt like I could do for a long time. And if you find something that you want to do for a long time and you're happy, um, you may not win the lottery, but more than likely you're going to be comfortable. Mm. And that's how I looked at it. And, and I really wanted to be at that, you know, 0.01% of everything else that I did that I've committed myself to. So what influenced you to take the path you took after graduation? Cause you ended up on the West coast, right? What brought you out there? Well, um, in culinary school, I volunteered for, um, the, uh, food and wine show in Aspen. Okay. I called up uh, the food and wine show in Aspen. I said, Hey, look, I'm a, I'm a culinary student out here in Vail. 
I'd really like to come out there and do whatever. You guys can use me, whatever. They said, wow, we've never had really anyone volunteer. I said, well, I know you have the CIA students that come, the top 10 CIA students could have come out and volunteer. I'm just offering my services. They're like, well, we couldn't pay to get you out here and we can't give you a place to stay. I said, I'm not asking for that. I just want to be a part of it. And uh, they called me back and said, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> and I said, cool. And I have three other friends that want to come. So uh, me and three other friends came and we all volunteered. And it was a really cool experience. Um, worked with some of the TV personalities. And then I got to work the top 10 chefs of whatever year that was, 99, I want to say. Is what I graduated culinary school. Okay. I think uh, I got 2000 on It here. could have been. Yeah, yeah, it could have been 2000. 2000. So <clears throat> we uh, drove out there and I ended up working the table for Tim Goodell. And man, they had a dish. He had a dish that was like still one of the top like dishes I've ever had in my life. And it was a uh, slow braised pork belly that was crispy with um, asparagus tips, Ligurian olive oil, English pea emulsion, and a morel cream sauce and it was like what just happened <laughs> it like rocked my world i had um the chef that i worked for at the tyrolean which is no longer there now it's condos and Vale, um was a creole chef he was from new orleans and worked for the brennans he had set me up a job with commanders and i was all set and this sounded like exciting to me and i was going to go to new orleans and but that kind of changed everything tim um for whatever happened during that time where i helped him at his table i got a call um, they called the office at Johnson and Wales that next week and asked if they could get my number. He called me and asked if he could fly me out there to check it out, check out Aubergine, um, see what he had to offer. They were looking for, for some help. So, uh, I, I was honest. I said, Hey, look, I've got a job at commanders. I'd be happy to come out there. He's like, well, I'll get you a plane ticket. You can come here for like a week. You can work in the kitchen, see what we're all about and see if we can change your mind. Yeah. What I love from this story is just offer your services for free. Don't look for anything in return. Just look to be of value to other people and then be of value. You know, follow through with what you say you're going to do and wait for opportunities to open up. And it sounds like that's kind of what you happen. It's not that easy. You, you got to bust your ass. You got to show people that you got what it takes, but you've got to also make things happen in your life. You've got to, you know, tip the, the ball to the edge of the, the mountains of, you know, gravity and momentum will take over. Uh, any advice for somebody who, who's reaching out to get that initial push, that, in, that initial momentum just to be surrounded by the right people? Well, I think you want to, um, put yourself out there to always be better. First, there's always someone who's better than you. There's always someone who's not as better than you. And nobody's better than anyone else. But you have to surround yourself with who you perceive as the best and push yourself to, to go check it out at least. So to me, it was, I want to check this out, Food and Wine Show in Aspen. And it happened again in New York when, we, when I get to how like, I got the job in New York. But it was, um, I just, I wasn't looking for anything. I was looking to be inspired. I was looking to be around, you know, greatness or good people, very good at what, at their field to see if I could pick up anything to learn. Mm. So that was what I was there to originally do. And that's kind of how that kind of morphed into me going to Aubergine and, and working there. My first stint there. Um, was that experience. And it was, it was cool. I, I, I went out there for a week. I asked him if I could have the plane extended for a few days because I had a buddy living in, um, in the hills uh, or in Santa Monica. I can't remember which one. But anyway, it was fun. And um, wow, they were doing stuff there that was like the books you read about at like French Laundry. But it was like a young group. It was really small. It was like the infancy of like a French Laundry kind of to me. Um, 
It was really exciting. They were making everything from scratch every day. They were there from like 10 or 11 in the morning till one or two at night. And I was like, I could eat this up. And I accepted the job after I came back. So, um, I needed to think through it, but I knew like when I left and when I was there, I was like, this is it. What was it like to be wanted by somebody though? I feel like that, that it sounded like chef Goodell like wanted you and he was like headhunting you. He wanted, I mean, did that, did that desire or that, that feeling of being a uh, valued influence your decision to go with, uh, Goodell then heading over to the commanders? Well, sure. It was pretty cool. Like, I don't think in our industry, a lot of the time someone flies you out for like a line cook position or like a starting position. I think that really just showed how tough it was at the time to get good talent and, um, and good for him for seeing it. Um, and I try to do the same thing. It's just, you don't always see it, but you're looking for good talent, whether it's, uh, a server, a host, uh, a cook, a chef, a sous chef, who it doesn't matter if you see someone that you believe in, like you need to go after it. And I think he did that. So I was just fortunate and lucky that he was in a position one that he needed help. And two, that he saw something in me that was, was worthwhile. So this is where I typically like to really dive into the key mentors you had. It sounds like Goodell was absolutely one of your key mentors. Uh, What were the things that he taught you? How do you think he most influenced who you are today? Well, I think um, there's first off, there's a couple things that I, I was attracted to, to as him as a chef, which was his really attention to detail. Um, his plating was meticulous, probably still is. Um, it was an art. It was an art form, and he just had a real good grasp of it, and he had a really good palate and be able to bend things the way that they needed to be. And at the time, I didn't, I couldn't do that. You know, like I, I was young, infancy. Um, in my career, but it was really kind of neat to see. And there was like neat techniques he was, he was doing, whether he read them or figured them out or whatnot. And he had pastry background. So like along with all those things leading to the, um, savory side was really kind of neat. Um, and he had tremendous integrity. Like the stuff that we got there was like top notch stuff. So it was really cool. And it was Southern California, which is like the best produce ever. Mm. So it was just like this really cool kind of thing. I mean, when I went there, we went to the Santa Monica farmer's market and like, what? I mean, if you're from Texas and even in New York, like they don't have that kind of market. There's not like that kind of produce or I don't remember seeing produce like that anywhere else. So it was really kind of neat. And then to walk around on the streets and see all these chefs shopping and doing all this stuff, it made me think, even though I hadn't been um, to see it, this is what it's like in Europe. This is what the the real chefs are doing, you know, and mm. like these are real chefs and this is really neat. So it was hard to not be, you know, I know. In- I, well, I know as a chef, it's, it's going to be natural for you to talk about the food to talk about how these other chefs influenced your, your ability to be a chef. But what about the, the human elements, the, the well, ways he led his team, the way he respected his team or ain't, I don't want to put thoughts I, at words. You know, at Tim, mouth, Tim was, um, he exposed some, he would show you some techniques and then it was kind of like, you're on your own. Um, it was a sink or swim kind of mentality and I thrived well under that. Some did not. So what are the strengths of that model? I mean, I think that you got to stick with a model that works well for you and go with it, but why did this work well for him? And what, what did you learn from the way he approached it? Well, I think it did. I think he had some success with it. I think that there's, um, a handful of chefs that came under his toolage that are really, you know, exceptional kind of chefs and have been very successful. Um, I've used some of that and then also a a little bit more 
teaching and, and, a, and a little bit more nurturing. And plus the rules have changed <laughs> a little bit from yeah. when I first started. Um, so I took the good parts, um, the things that were, that I thought were how you need to be, which was you need to have integrity with your food. You need to have integrity with your product. You need to have integrity with what you're putting up. If it's not right, you start and stop over the entire table. Um, just like that integrity. And that's, that's really important. And that was something that I picked up on. And, um, so it sounds like the discipline, we already mentioned the attention to detail, but the discipline for standard is something that I'm picking up from you to not settle for anything other than exactly what we decided was the standard. Right. So if it wasn't right, make it nice or make it twice. Nice. So, um, yeah. And it was that work ethic of starting everything from scratch or pretty much all from scratch and, and having to be organized and have a prep list and all these things that, um, he was there, but also learned from some of the other chefs, like the sous chef that was there or the, the, um, lead cooks that were showing you what to do. So it was, I mean, it, it comes from the top down, mm-hmm. um, or he surrounded himself with, with great talent. Either way, it doesn't matter. Like it was, um, that was what I got was surround yourself with great talent, people that have more heart than anything else because everything else you can kind of work on. 85% of the time. Yeah. So you eventually found yourself over at, on the East Coast, La Bernardin, under Chef Repair. Uh, were you working mostly with Chef Repair at this time? You're probably more influenced by Mueller, <laughs> Chef Chris Mueller, I would imagine. Or was, or was yeah, Repair so Chris, still- Chris was the um, chef de cuisine. And, you know, really it was, a, it was an exciting time for me because I went up to New York. I had no job. My dad and mom were like, what are you doing? I was like, look, I can find a job anywhere. So, again, the same kind of thing that happened at Aspen. Um, I sent my resume into a handful of restaurants um, that I wanted to stage and check out. And I said, hey, are you applying? I said, no. I just want to check it out. I'm just here n- new to New York. Yes, I'm uh, I'm a cook. And yes, but um, I really want to see what New York has to offer before I make any kind of commitments or decide where I want to apply to, to work. So I, I trailed it um, or staged, whichever way you want to look at it, at a handful of restaurants. And La Bernadette was one of them. What were you, as somebody who was trying to identify the places you wanted to stage at, what were, what was important to you? Um, I was really into that high end French or, you know, semi French. I liked, I loved fish, the finesse of fish, um, the delicacy of it, the intimacy with all the food, but fish is different in the fact that you can't throw it up against a wall. Like meat, you can throw up against the wall and it's still going to be okay. Maybe it's tenderizing it. Yeah. Fish, you do that and it's gone. (laughs) Yeah. So and the sense of time urgency in cooking is less forgiving. So I was really into that. So I went to um, a couple of places like that. I, I remember trailing at um, Danube, at Aquavie, at um, uh, Jean-Georges, at Le Bernardin, um, Ocean Air, with Rick Moonen and them. Um, and I just, I liked all of them. I, I really liked Danube too. It was just, uh, it was about 45 minutes away yeah. by train i was up on 50th and second that was downtown closer to downtown um and i had to take trains and then if you left at nine or 11 you'd have you know what do you do take a cab i don't know so um la bernadette was a 15 minute walk and they were doing exceptional stuff and um i thought that, that was the best place for me to be at at that time arguably probably one of the best restaurants in the, the world that focusing on fish as the oh yeah table. no it's unbelievable if not the best uh so i say you, so you settled i'm doing that i with settled, but no i, I <laughs> went there you know and they gave me the spiel like yeah. 
I, I was, again, I was just staging. I was just checking it out. And he's like, Hey, you know, and, and Chris gave that speech and I'm sure he gave it to a lot of people. Listen, we get 20, when we're accepting positions, we get 25 resumes a day of those 25. We pick a handful of those, you know, that we pick, we have people stage all week and then we offer one a job. I'm offering you a job. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, thank you very much. Let me, you know, I have one more place I need to check out. Can I check it out? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I probably was, <laughs> you know, but then I, I did take, the, I did take the job and it was a exceptional experience to see how, you know, it didn't have three Michelin at the time, but I would assume that we were doing the same thing and the same attention to detail then that they're doing now. Um, which was, um, you know, how do you get 20, 25 cooks elbow to elbow and do 300, plus people or 300 people at a Michelin level and execute it flawlessly. I'm just super curious when you came back to La Bernadette, uh, what was his reaction? Oh no, they were, uh, he was like, cool. You know, <laughs> I mean, like, back. <laughs> I, I don't need, you know, I don't remember that part. I just remember that speech, you know? That's awesome. Um, so, so what were the big lessons you, you learned at La Bernadette, one of the best restaurants in the world? I mean, I remember getting kicked off a line because I didn't have the enough olive oil on my station. Really? Like, get off the line. You know, Chris was like, get the fuck off the line, Scott, or whatever he said. And um, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, that's awesome that <laughs> I just got kicked off the line for not having enough an, olive oil. Like, that's badass. But you know? there's like, I'm at be, the right place. Yeah, there's something to be said about that, too. Yeah. Like most people, if they get kicked off the line, the first thing that's happening is they're getting, like, emotionally beat up. Like, they're, they're in their head, they're pissed no, off. No, like, I, d- I deserved it, you know? Like, um, <laughs> and then the other thing was I remember putting up a salad, like, a mixed green salad, and he's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, taste that. It's overdressed. Eat the whole thing. I'm like, what? You know, or, like you know what? I didn't overdress salad again. So again, those lessons as hardcore or whatever, and I don't think they were very hardcore. Like today, maybe people would think it's hardcore, but those are things that I took with me, whether it was someone cutting salmon and leaving the bloodline on and asking, I'm like, really? Like you like the taste of the bloodline? They're like, what are you talking about? I was like, I mean, if you think it's good enough for a guest, don't you think it's good enough for you to eat? eat it. Tell me what you think. And of course, like they think it's disgusting. and want to spit it out. I'm like, no, no, no. You were going to send that out to a guest. Like, obviously it's pretty, it's okay for them. It's okay for you. And you know what? They don't make that mistake again. I'm trying to find the words to describe what I'm hearing. I think it's just like, like not even brutal, but like, um, just unwavering standards and being super just, when the standards are broken, whatever you have to do to communicate the significance of that standard, you got to deliver the message. Maybe it comes off as cruel or like, but whatever, like you got to communicate because you don't have <laughs> second chances. Like you got to knock it out of the park when you're operating at that level, at that caliber. Yeah. When you're trying, like when we had Bijou, like that's what we were trying to do. You know, it was everything, you know, every day is a Super Bowl, And I think I was in some article that I said that and they said, what do you mean? I said, look, it's, Every day is someone's birthday here or anniversary or showboating with a boss or a client. Like it's very important to them. And they're like hypersensitive to everything that we're doing. So like we're up against the odds. So everything has to be perfect, whether it's coffee service or it's how you present the drink or how you make the cocktail or how you plate the dish or how you balance the sauce. Like they're looking for anything that's wrong, you know? So that's a tough place to be at these mission level restaurants, which you know, obviously there's no Michelin in Dallas, but that's what we strive to be and, and all these things. So it's a constant tightrope and those things matter. You know, if someone's going to open up oysters and they're fresh and one of them's bad and they think they're going to serve it, like, I mean, is it good enough for the guests? Should you try it? 
Like, did yeah. you smell it? Like, did you take the time, the t- the two seconds to make sure that your work was okay before you sent it out? Like, maybe you should, or maybe you should eat it. You know, so those were the kind of things that that yeah we in, in, instilled at Bijou um, as you delve into um, restaurants that are not as formal, not trying to obtain Michelin stars. Your standards don't necessarily relax, but how you express it to your staff um, and what you try to do um, does relax slightly. Yeah, so I think we've we've really drilled home the importance of standards and communicating the standards. What else did you learn about business or how to lead a kitchen or or, or manage a kitchen uh, from these incredible people that you were surrounding yourself with? Well, Le Bernadette did teach me that they had the sous chefs um, working um, five twelve-hour shifts, and it didn't matter what was going on in the kitchen when they're you know, it became 10 o'clock and the people that came in at 10, like they were gone. So I took from that, like, Hey, look, you need to have, even at this level, you need to have some balance a line, right? There's a line like, no, you're not going to have to stay till midnight till we are slower and then come back in. There was one, we should be able to figure it out and we can do it without you and you'll be okay. Why is that so important to, to recognize that there has to be a line drawn as far as finding that, that work-life balance? And what does that do? What's the impact of that? Well, um, I learned the work-life balance too later on um, as well too when I had children. But I think it's really important to know that there needs to be a life outside of work. Otherwise, that focus that you're looking for and that intensity at a, at a restaurant of that caliber, um, you can't do it for, you know, 150 hours a week yeah it's hard to do for you know 70 hours once you hit about 70 like it starts getting a little bit more difficult um some people would say you know 40 or 50 no i I think 60 is probably it you know but once you start getting over that like you start slipping well that's the thing We're, we're talking about the significance of standards but when you get burnt out it's meeting those standards gets a lot more difficult so you can only do it so hard before you that like you say you start to slip uh we're gonna ask the, other, the other part to me, which um, became really important, was your two days off need to be in a row, um, not splitting the two days. Because, you know, you really, when you're that intense about something and you're so enthralled in it, you know, you're working hard for the fifth day. The fifth day is a little bit harder, but it's usually like a Saturday or a, a busy night. Like, so it's exciting. So you get through it and it's just like, whew, yeah, you, ha- you have to regroup. And the first day is like just totally regrouping like you don't have time for like the monotonous things in your life that you have to do like laundry or right. you know go to the grocery store all those things so like you're stocked up for the week because you don't have any time right so um it's really important to me that that that's something that we offer some people don't take it with our with our restaurants and and our groups but um that's something to me that at least for me that i realized even though once we opened bijou there was a you know eight or nine year stint. I worked, you know, six and a half days, yeah. but, but I, I think that's important for other people because they didn't sign up for the same stuff that I did. Yeah. I want to leave the, the remainder of our free flowing conversation to talk about the businesses that you've started and how you've grown as an owner over the past, what now, uh, 12 years, 13 years. Uh, but is there anything that's worth mentioning, anything that's worth bringing to the surface as far as key influences, key mentors? I know you, you came back to Dallas in 2003 and you had your first executive chef role, maybe any lessons to learn there before going on to your first ventures? Well, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't really have a chef there that, um, was a mentor, um, because I was the exec pretty quick there. Um, but 
Van was the owner, and he was really into in, into wine and really gave us freedom of expression, which was really kind of neat. If I look back to who my mentors were outside of the culinary world, which are, I think, just as probably more influential than what happened in the culinary world, um, was obviously my parents, um, uh, the high school I went to, St. Mark's here in Dallas, as well as uh, uh, my coach, Coach Ortega, who was my wrestling coach in high school um, at St. Mark's. And I think the things that, that how those influenced me was, one, my parents were um, in, in a position to uh, find that school for me. And what that school taught us, and I still think it teaches today, is that um, hard work pays off and that um, delayed gratification and to work on your weaknesses. Um, magnify your strengths, but work on your weaknesses and don't stop. And um, time management. I think Coach Ortega taught me the same thing too. I mean, wrestling was, you know, you gave up, you know, things that everybody needs, food, <laughs> water, and you had to push through it. And you had to work out, you know, and work harder than everyone else. And I think I, the, the reason for my success was because, not because I was more talented than everybody out there. Um, although I think at some level you, you do have talent. It was that I worked harder than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Sorry, like I got up earlier. I stayed up later. I thought about it. I lived it. I dreamed it. I was everything. And the same thing with, with, uh, with food and restaurants and cooking and all those things. Um, I think that work ethic, that attention to detail, that focus, I call it a narrow tunnel syndrome where nothing else matters and you let everything else slide, whether it's the groceries that you, you didn't get or um, go into social events. I mean, I missed many, many events. I didn't go to weddings. I didn't go to concerts. I didn't, I was, it was Saturday night at yeah. the restaurant. So, I mean, if you're dedicated like that and you're into it, it's that work ethic and that being driven um, which maybe you some some people have innately in them. I don't know if I innately had it in me when I was was born, but I think it can be. Um, I think it can be uh, influenced by your surrounding and putting yourself around people that are better than you to want to strive for that greatness. Chef Gottlich, I've been loving this conversation. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel, and I could tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grain Junction Subs in the Craft Cave, to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize more mobile order takers, and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Revel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. We're back. And let's bring it to when you decided you knew you were ready to open your own place. Like, How did you know you were ready? Sure. Well, I was, um, I was at Lola. In fact, when I moved to Dallas from uh, California, because I was in California, then New York, then back in California. Yeah, I should, we should mention that you went back to California to, for another year under Goodell. Yeah, so I went back and um, ran that kitchen like as a, 
I mean, I, I'm not really into titles, sous chef, executive sous chef, whatever it is, um, ran that kind of kitchen. And that was the only kind of thing I would have left Le Bernardin for because I thought it was really, it would be a good learning experience for me. So there I learned about, you know, how to run a kitchen, how to manage all the cooks, um, although it was a small kitchen, um, and cost and things like that, labor. Um, I was getting ready to come back to Dallas to open up a restaurant with someone that was actually working with me there. It fell through, turned out. It was actually probably a good thing. Why is that? Because if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. <laughs> okay. You can't force things. It's kind of like cutting through a fish or oxtail. Like if you're forcing the cut, like it's not good. <laughs> it should be like butter, you know? Gotcha. Um, there's plenty of other times it can totally get messed up, right? So, um, yeah, so came back here, got the job at Lola, and I knew that I wanted to have my own restaurant one day, and I really wanted that kind of feel that um, – Aubergine was and Lola, which was like these quaint places that did prefects and all that kind of stuff. So my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, um, I met her at Aubergine at the tail end of my last stint there. Anyway, after a long distance relationship, she came out here and um, we got engaged, got married, and we're going to open up this restaurant. I left Lola to help Alberto Lombardi open up Cafe Toulouse which is like a French bistro. It was next, it was near Taverna, his Italian place. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, through, through some friends and, and some, his, one of his daughters is the same age as me. Um, and I was friends with her. I got to meet him and had lunch with him. And, you know, he had opened like 30 restaurants at the time, um, had this extensive experience. And I was like, wow, he's getting ready to open up this restaurant. What's going through your mind when you realize that you're only one point removed from such a, a potentially great influence in your life? Well, I was, I was hungry for the opportunity, so I just wanted to talk to him about me opening up a restaurant. Same kind of thing. Like, I just wanted to learn, you know? Yeah. And in the process, he's like, it somehow came up. I don't remember exactly how. He's like, hey, what do you think about helping me open Cafe Toulouse? And I was the chef over at Lola, but it seemed like a no-brainer to me. It was like, you know, Lola, I can stay here and keep doing the same thing that I'm doing, but... I could go help Alberto open up Cafe Toulouse. I'm I could, master, I right? could watch him from, you know, the process of opening up exactly. the four walls of a restaurant, get some connections there, networking, and see what it's like. Yeah. And I was like, I'd never opened up a restaurant. Yeah, and that's a huge lesson. Well, two huge lessons I want to draw. Again, <laughs> you have to be the catalyst. You have to be the trigger. People aren't going to come to you. I mean, it could happen, but the the likelihood of you creating opportunities for yourself is if you go out and you trigger the opportunity by just being curious, by taking an interest in somebody else, not looking for opportunity, right. but by just by being the nudge, right? Put yourself out there. And the other part of that, like you, you could spend your career working in the best restaurant, but it's one thing to run a restaurant. It's another thing to open a restaurant. Well, it's another thing to open. It's another two to, um, you know, it's a weakness. I hadn't opened up a restaurant. I hadn't been on the side that said, hey, what are we, how are we going to build out this kitchen? Kitchens were there when I got there. As much as I thought I knew, like, don't you think you're going to learn something when you open up a restaurant? So I was like, I want to, you know, can, what can I get out of this? Um, and it was great. So I got to go there, work on all the menu development. He did hire a chef because I was going to be leaving after a period of time, um, after like the opening. Um, but we ended up firing that chef three days before we opened. He wasn't happy with the way this going. And he pulled me aside and said, Scott, can you get me through this? So I had to redo everything in like three days and we opened. Um, 
and it was a tremendous success because I think he was planning on doing like 300 people a day. We ended up doing like a thousand. So our walking was too small. We had to build a bigger walk in like all sorts of stuff. And it was just, it was a really neat experience of, wow, this doesn't happen all the time, but Hey, how do you deal with these kind of situations? Um, so to me, learning how to open up a restaurant, all the setbacks with permitting and all these different things and how they designed it, even though I had no say, you know, and, in uh, the front of the house kind of stuff. And I give recommendations for the, the kitchen stuff. It was just kind of, it was neat and so it was cool. What was the biggest thing that you thought or that you believe you learned from Alberto about <coughs> opening a restaurant? One thing that you would have been clueless about otherwise. Um, you know, I think, uh, the, he, he was, a, we did the mock services. We started off with friends and family and then we like opened it up. Um, it was about attention to detail. Like he wasn't happy with some of the stuff that was going on in these mock services. And, and he was willing to say, Hey, you know, to the chef, you need to fix this. And Kim, the chef got into it. And like, obviously you shouldn't be getting into it with someone <laughs> who has, you know, yeah. Right. Has done 30 restaurants or whatever. Um, but you know, to me it was, uh, Hey, look, there's a lot of things that happen when you open a restaurant that you cannot think of. And every restaurant's different. So each time you open up a new restaurant, there's different curveballs. You need to be able to bob and weave. You need to be able to make split-second decisions that can keep it going. You know, um, that's what I kind of learned from it. You know, the preparation that went into it, um, all of the above. You know, he was fortunate in the fact that he had other restaurants open at the time that we could pull staff from. So that was slightly different than when I opened up our restaurants. But, um it was really just, again, he was, he had a lot of integrity too on how he wanted it to be when he, when it opened and what it meant to be. So your first restaurant, uh, correct me if I say this correct, <laughs> wrongly, uh, uh, Bijou or Bijou? Bijou. Bijou. Uh, 2006 is when you opened Bijou. What was it like opening your first restaurant? Dive into that experience. Well, it was surreal. I mean, it was, um, wow, I can't believe this is really happening. It was, uh, 31, 30 years old. Um, this shouldn't be happening. Is it too soon? I feel like I'm ready. You know, I was just happened to be in the right place at the right time to get all this experience. And Gina, my wife was, um, you know, sommelier and really, you know, I had a great handle on the front of the house service and, and all that kind of execution. And I was like, we're a team. Like, this is a perfect match. I couldn't do it with someone, you know, other than her to do this. And, um, Anyways, really surreal. It was, you know, I tried to surround myself with the best. So I had my buddy Eddie came on. Um, I had uh, uh, a pastry chef friend that came in and it was just, it was really neat. And we tried to get the best people to help us open. Um, we opened with more staff than you probably needed. We knew we needed that. Um, and it was one of those kitchens where if one dish wasn't right, we started the whole table over. I remember doing like 30 people for mock service and it took like three hours. Wow. So this is 2006 around this time. Like the economy was still good. Oh, it was uh, rocking. Yeah. Was so, rocking. uh, I mean, things changed two years after. I mean, was there anything to take from the opening? Anything <clears throat> you guys did really well? Anything that you think you really <laughs> flopped on that you, that you could have done better? I mean, you had a 10 year run cause you guys did close in 2015. It's like, like eight and a half, nine years. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it was a fight from the beginning for Bijou. I mean, it was a fight to get the to open and get the investors and to get the funding. It was it was it was grueling. A lot of no's. You know, you have to be really resilient if you believe in what you're doing. 
Um, How'd you get the yes eventually? What, what did you do differently to get the so yes? So I took out an SBA. Um, and I also had a, some limited partners. So with the limited partners, usually the way an SBA works is you go in and um, you get an SBA loan, which is hard for restaurants, mm-hmm. hard for first-time you know, business entrepreneurs, and hard for you know, all sorts of reasons. Um, I was told no by like three or four banks. I was actually told no by the bank that I got it from that actually said yes. What I did was I took the um, – some of our money and some of the limited partners money to use that as an injection for the loan. So you have to have so much, you know, capital raised skin in the game, although you're still personally guaranteeing it. Um, and they said, well, I mean, it needs to be your money. I said, what do you care? Like I've hit the ratio, like I'm guaranteeing it. It is what it is. And, um, they took it back to the powers that be and said, you know, Scott, no one's ever done it like this before, but we're in. I was like, yeah, you know. But see, like you reach a point where they could have went either way. But when you're somebody who has worked for some incredible people who's dedicated X amount of years to their life, surrounding themselves with the best opening restaurants with other successful brands, like that's going to be the stuff that will push banks over. Like, do they have the track record? Have they have they aligned their brands with other successful brands? Do they have the people in their network to go to to make right. this work? I mean, I think. Do you think that they? Would I think have- that played a part. I think too when they when they looked at. It, I think. You know, because we hit the number, like there's a, a ratio that banks are looking for to see how. Do you know what that ratio is? I don't remember what it was, but I mean, you know, it depends whether it's real estate or, or business wise. And you can ask your bank, what's the ratio you're looking for of how much risk? So when they look at that, that number, if it's, you know, $100,000 risk and the government's going to back, you know, 50 of it, like of that 50, how much are you putting down? You know, so, um, and then how'd you get that money? Well, it shouldn't matter how you got the money if you're going to put the money as long as it's legal, right? Yeah. Um, so when they looked at it that way and we had hit the, the ratios on what we were trying to do, it worked out. Yeah, I think, I can't remember who said it, but uh, one of the pieces of advice we've gotten on the show on getting the loan is take away the nose. So if you get a bunch of nose, find out why you got the nose and then eliminate yeah. the nose and, and force the people like, so what will a yes take? You know, what, yeah, what, you what need what to you know what they're looking for. Exactly. If and you then, don't know what they're looking for and you're shooting blind, like you're shooting blind, like you need to know how to play the game. Mm-hmm. It's like everything in life. You know, if you don't know how to play the game, whether it's a restaurant or how to balance a dish or, you know, any of it, it, it and you keep doing the same thing. That's insane. Yeah. That, so, yeah, absolutely, man. I don't want to cut you short. We're mm. going to finish a thought. No, that was it. So you've opened two restaurants since uh, Baiju. Um, second floor and where we are today. Uh, so what? I kind of want to see if there's any lessons because you had a really solid run, eight or nine years, you said, at Baiju. Um, <clears throat> what, what, in your opinion, what, was, uh, the, what caused it to close? If you could take any lessons. From oh, well, I don't think it was cause to close. I think we reached a point where, um, you know, we had uh, the second floor, which was a full service hotel, breakfast, lunch, dinner, room service. And we did our own brand for banquets, um, private events. I think Bijou, although we changed the menu day in and day out, like we printed every day, I just felt like we were kind of doing the same thing. More importantly was it took all my time. Mm. Um, it was that restaurant 
a namesake restaurant. I'm kind of on the same page of I heard Marco Pera White say one time, if it's your signature place, you need to be there. Mm. You know, people expect you to be there. And the, the guests expected me to be there. If I wasn't there, they were pissed. If I didn't go to their table by accident, went to another table because I was busy. Take and like, personal. they took it personal. Like, yeah, I can't tell you how many people got pissed off. And it was not to slight them. And it wasn't to be mean. It was because, I mean, I was actually working back there, you know, expoing, making sure the dishes were right to go out. I wasn't just being a showman. So um, that daily grind and then two, my kids getting a little bit older, realized one, we could continue along this plight and we could have Bijou and we could have the second floor or we could take a breather um, of the Super Bowl every day and all the intense intensity and intenseness that goes along with, with what the guests demand, which they should, right, yeah. for, for that kind of restaurant. Um, we could close it and then we could have more opportunities and we could make the shift from being a chef restaurateur to being, you know, a restaurateur that's a chef that c- couldn't do that. And Gina can do the same thing with being a psalm in, in front of the house and, and beverage. You know, can we make that switch and can we have more potential to have more restaurants that won't take up all our nights? Yeah, I think that's a really important question to ask yourself when you're thinking of the kind of restaurant you want to own. Uh, are you willing? Whatever whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's a real chef-driven concept, if it is a chef-driven concept, then guess what? Like, it's going to absorb most of your time. Are, are unless, yeah, unless you, you pull some people close to you that you can replace yourself with, but that's not an easy thing to do. So, are you willing to be there all the time? Do you want to open multiple concepts? So, you really got to think about the kind of place that you're opening. Yeah, no, I was really fortunate when we had Bijou. The structure at the hotel was we had a GM, we had a chef, we had you know sous chefs, we had a whole crew, and we have a hotel to back it up, and we had an accounting department, an HR department, and all these things that we all worked in, you know, with, and and um, it made it simpler for us to do it as opposed to not. And again, if you're going to, if you want to be the best at something, it's going to take all your time. Mm -hmm. So once you realize like, Hey, this is taking away from other opportunities and the opportunity cost became too much. Um, especially with this time period in our family life, you know, we just had to make that decision and it took about a year. It was like a whole grieving process of getting there to, I think the right thing to do is, to shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was hard because it, at the end of the day, if you could ask me what I'd want to do, I'd want to open up a place. It was only open six months you know, out of the year, only open like four nights a week. And we'd be doing like unbelievable stuff. And that's all we do. Um, being a chef and being in the kitchen is like the best thing ever. But, you know, um, I have an aptitude for analytics. I have an aptitude for, you know, business kind of stuff. And it allows me to still contribute to, um, the food programs that we have and, and, uh, work with the chefs. And sometimes I get in there, you know, it's not that I don't, don't get in there, but I don't work the shifts like I used to. So, um, I still get to do some of what I love and do other things that I never thought I would enjoy. So you opened the second floor two years after opening Bijou, uh, any lessons from that experience that, that second opening after having one opening under your belt already? Oh yeah, that, there's a lot of huge lessons out of, of working and teaming up with with Starwood, which was um, mom and pop kind of place. Decisions happen very fast, and there's a lot of what was that the word? What happens very fast? I missed it. Decisions. Oh, decisions. Okay. Sorry. Um, you don't have to bob and weave as much. You don't have to like have a meeting about a meeting about a meeting. <laughs> um, 
but you learn how to slow down and there's some good parts to it. Like if you make decisions too fast, um, they can be detrimental. So there were some great things and, and good things that I learned out of about it as, you know, some of the professionalism that was forced, you know, through forced attrition upon us, um, especially coming from some of the old school guard of, of restaurants and chefs. Um, I thought those were very valuable lessons and we still use them today. They're incentive programs, the way that, um, or based on it, they're how they incentivized people, how they set up certain structures, how they did training, what they expected and, and communicated to the staff what they expected. Whereas, you know, I was taught in a sink or swim kind of situation. Even at Lola, it was sink or swim. I was like, here you go. Yeah. You know, here's menu. So you, one of the things you said is not to make decisions too quickly. <laughs> was there a time that you did make a quick decision and how did it hurt you? You know, I mean, I can look back. I'm sure that I've fired people on the spot and stuff like that. And, I, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily the way to, to do things anymore. Um, that stopped for us a long, long time ago. I think what, what I learned was, is you never want to make an emotional or a charged decision. You need to regroup Mm. and all decisions should be unemotional. It shouldn't, you shouldn't have emotion tied to business decisions. And as much as I don't, you don't want to throw a restaurant in a business. It is a business. So as somebody who has been able to develop this, uh, positive reaction of controlling your emotions when the shit hits the fan, what, what does that conversation in your head look like? How do you step off the cliff from, you know, taking an, an emotional roller coaster to like taking a few steps back and saying, let's just go for a walk. And like, what's that conversation look like for you? Um, well, I'm not saying that I didn't yell in a kitchen yeah, you know, but and stuff, but like yeah, you, you, what you, what I realized was this is not healthy for me. More importantly, it's not healthy for them. And the idea is that if there's something that we're having to get on, get on all the time, this isn't a good place for, it's not a good match. Mm-hmm. So what I realized was, you know, very early, very early was, um, Hey, there's something off. What, what's going on? Are you not happy here? Um, is it too difficult of a task? All these different things. So because of relationships with the hotel and stuff, we started formalizing all those things as opposed to just informal. Um, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it became easier because yeah. it shouldn't be that it's just constant, like frustration. Yeah. It sounds like before, you know, you were just, maybe quick to get to who was right, who was wrong, but how you evolved is it what, when the, the situation arose, instead of saying who's right, who's wrong, you would go back and say, well, what started this? Why are we here in yeah. the first place? And that's the appropriate action is, is to go back in time, find out where the, you know, the, the train got off the, the tracks and then recorrect from there. <laughs> Don't, you know, just try to prove your point in the moment of the, the, the heated moment. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you start looking at things when you start looking at big pictures, you're looking at it is, is it the individual's issue or is it a bigger issue in the structure of things? So um, you want the system to work for everyone, not just one individual, Mm. just like you can't build a restaurant around one person other than you. If you're the chef or, you know, you're the owner, but your system has to be made for the type of skill set that you're looking for. And it has to work for all of them. You can't just, mold it each yeah. time. Otherwise you're so busy with all these things. So you said Bijou was a, a huge 
I'm still afraid I'm not saying that correctly. Bijou. Bijou, thank you. Uh was a huge challenge because you were so tied to it. Um, did you learn how tied you to it you were when you opened second floor? Because that was after what, almost ten years or nine years. No, we yeah, no, we opened up uh the second floor oh, so two, year, two years two years sorry. later. Um it was just like an extension. It was like, oh, we're gonna have fun, we're gonna do a little bit less serious food. Um we have this cool platform, it's a little bit more modern. You know, we don't have to use tablecloths the same way. It was really kind of neat. And we also uh, focused a lot on more than just wine, which Bijou was very wine driven, although we had a full bar on whiskeys and scotches and, you know, bourbons and stuff. So it was really kind of neat. It was fun. Okay. So 2015 is when you opened 18th and Vine. Uh, Right. So we closed Bijou in February of 2015. Was that this location? No. Okay. It was uh, off off of Lover's, Lover's Lane. Um, yeah, and I was approached by a buddy of mine, um, who we shared, you know, a very close, one of my best friends, um, was one of his best friends as well, um, in college. And I had known him for quite a while and he called me and said, Hey Scott, listen, um, I helped you with your, uh, PPM private placement memorandum for Bijou and stuff. And he didn't say it like that. And he, he didn't even throw that in my face. But what was I, the acronym again? You said it kind of quickly. Uh, PPM that. private placement memorandum. It's like something you need to have when you're, um, getting funds from individuals for blue sky loss. It's a type. Yeah. Got it's you. a partnership agreement. So, um, he said, Hey, look, I got, I got a, a buddy of mine whose brother-in-law is really good pit master. Um, never had a restaurant before and he's getting ready to open up this restaurant. They signed a lease. They're, you know, getting ready to do it, started getting ready to start construction and everything. And I'd like you to meet him. And, you know, I don't know what you're doing right now, but, um, maybe you could help out, you know, like you could help out with the restaurant stuff. And I said, Hey, I, I don't know if I can do that. I was like, I'm French classically trained. Like I owe you and you're, an awesome person. I'll meet these people and maybe I can help them, but I don't know if I really want to be involved. It's barbecue. Like, um, my dad loves it. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. And, but I, how do you go from being a French chef to like classically trained and like these high end restaurants and then do barbecue? And, um, anyway, long story short is I went there and had lunch with them and the ribs were like unbelievable. Like they were fantastic. Like no ribs I'd ever had. Everything else was very good. And at the table, um, someone who is very close to my aunt and uncle was there, who was a partner. Then the brother-in-law of of Matt um, went to law school with a lot of my classmates from high school. Um, And they were, you know, in each other's weddings and stuff. And then, like, it was just too much. It was like, these are really good people. And Matt and Kimmy were um, very kind of special people. They, you know... adopted a child and then had their own, but it's like, they're just, they're really, everyone seemed like really good people. And like, you want really good people to be successful. But you also had mentioned earlier that when you, when you were thought about, uh, doing or, you know, closing, uh, Bijou, I'm still worried that I'm not yeah, saying Bijou. Bijou. God, uh, <laughs> when you thought about closing Bijou, it was so you could open yourself up to work on other, other opportunities. Yeah, so so th- this was kind of like, uh, the right timing. Right. So it can't, I mean, there was, a there was uh, two other major projects I was looking at at the time, um, as well as some others. But there were three at the top, and this was one of them. It was not at the top at the beginning. But um, after I had lunch with them, and they told me what they were doing, they were doing a full-service 
barbecue place. It wasn't counter service. It was going to have a full bar and jazz was the theme and all this stuff and why that is. And, you know, 18th and Vine, the cross streets and all this stuff. I was pretty intrigued by it. And, um, I went to sleep and I was like, I I still don't know how this is going to work. Like it's barbecue. Um, and then I thought about it. I was like, okay, well, I'm a chef. I've never done barbecue. Barbecue is the only cooking method indigenous to the United States. And I'm like, you know, and it's got to be similar to braising or roasting and all these things. Can we do anything different? What if we had some entrees or appetizers that were, that had a barbecue element? I don't mean like a sauce. I mean like barbecue, the verb. I was like, what about barbecued oysters, Rockefeller? What if we cooked them in the smoker? What if we had, um, you know, potato skins with barbecued pork belly instead of bacon? What if we did barbecued lobster thermidor? What if we did a barbecued steak? What I mean, so it just kind of opened up like all these things. Can we do a barbecued vegetarian dish? Can we do barbecued cauliflower? Like all these things came and you know what? I, I, I said, Hey, look, I'll help you guys like do restaurant stuff and show you a couple things here and there. But if you want me involved, this is, what do you guys think about this? And they were like, what, what just happened? Let's do it. So it was really kind of neat. I was like, we're on this frontier of what I felt like was pushing the envelope. It wasn't just smoking. We weren't doing cold smoke. This was barbecue. Like barbecue started without just these major cuts of meat. It wasn't just, you know, brisket and, you know, whole hog, all these things. It was whatever you found. It was like, okay, we're going to barbecue a rabbit. We're going to barbecue a snake. Oh, we're going to barbecue a lamb. We're going to, you look at Kentucky and you see like, you know, and you look at how lamb was a big barbecue element there and the um, black barbecue sauce, which was like a mop with Worcestershire and like all these different things. And I was like reading about all these different sauces and all the history that goes along with barbecue and the geographic reasons why mustard is in the South Carolina and um, in a mop and because the Germans were there and like why, you know, coleslaw came to be and why potato salads and all these different things with barbecue because of the region that people came from when they came from somewhere else, they got a pamphlet to come move to the United States and said, Hey, you can have this farm and you can live here and da da da. And then next thing you know, like people are barbecuing. So it was, you know, barbecue originally didn't have just these specific cuts of meats. And I don't think it does now, but I think barbecue started off like as a chef where you just barbecued everything. It was the vegetables and the meats and all the stuff. And then you did a dish, you know? So to me, it was really getting back to the basics of classic, but that's not, now we call that modern, you know, we call it modern Q. So one of the things you wanted to do when you were setting up 18th and Vine was to make it so you wouldn't have to be so attached to it. So what things did you do to be able to be a part of it, obviously, but to also keep yourself distant enough where you would be able to have freedom and flexibility to work in other projects. Did you go into this project with that mentality that you couldn't be so close to it because we knew what would happen because you already lived that. Uh, So how did you treat this situation differently? Um, Well, it's not like everything's, it's not the same as a three Michelin kind of restaurant. Now, listen, I still think that doing, you know, making a meatloaf or making a sausage or cooking the ribs or the brisket is just as important as braising and all these other things. So the attention to detail of like making sure that meat is cooked correctly and and seasoned correctly and all those things are very important. But um, at a more casual restaurant, you're looking at things that make it so that everybody can do the same thing 
all the time, whether yeah. it's okay. whether it's like we're we're cooking the meat, right? So that's cooked by pitmaster, and there's only a few handful hand only a few hands that hit that. Um, and then take that product to make like our burn in shepherd pie. Well, I mean, we can make it so that it's easier to assemble, easier to plate and do than making everything from scratch when the order comes in. Um, meaning that like we do have the potatoes, we do have these things that we're going to some, you know, put it together. Um, we're not starting, you know, the burn in process, right? When yeah. the order comes in, you know what I mean? So, um, I think we come up with tricks to make it so that we have consistency, whether okay. it's using the same you know, size scoop on a sour cream, whereas, whereas as a chef you were trained, you show people what to do and you're on the path to watch every yeah. single thing that comes out. So now we need to take it to, and a lot of casual places do this. Like, and there's some places that it's really right in front of you and it's awesome. Mm. Um, so, like bread Zeppelin, like how they use their scoops for their salad, like, and it becomes consistent. Yeah. So, that's what we kind of did here. Listening to your story, I cannot help but think of Chef Craig Hartman. I don't know if that name is familiar to you, but he opened the barbecue exchange in Virginia, probably one of the best known barbecues in that area, at least. Um, but he, like you, had like this little uh, air, it was like a bed and breakfast, like chef driven bed and breakfast that was like put like this town on the map and like they were like winning awards left and right but he's like i can't sustain this like this place needs me uh and that's why he went to barbecue because they did one thing really well and then they could create systems and processes and procedures around that one thing so they became more dependent on the systems and processes and you need the people too but at least you can train them to a certain point and then let the systems and the checklist and all those things kind of take Mm -hmm. over and that's kind of what i'm hearing from you is like you you still took it up a little bit more of an elevated level than just barbecue because you're, you're throwing in other variables, but you're not so far that you can't rely more on systems and processes and procedures now to free you up to, to focus on other things. You have to make it so you're not the system procedures and checklist. You yes. have to make it so you actually have those. Okay. And the chef mentality was you are the systems checklist. And so any procedures. lessons, any, any nuggets that you can drop on us on how you achieve that with this concept? No, it's just, it's really just organization and like trying to figure out, um, all the ins and outs and there's always constant curve curveballs, whether it was, you know, a year ago, the, the onslaught from the Uber eats and, and the DoorDash and how that's really changed to go food and what that means for your operation. So how have you changed? How have you adapted to, uh, evolve for these different challenges and opportunities? You just, I mean, you just have to take each ex- experience and, and learn from it. But I mean, if, if you have a new, system it takes a little bit to figure out how to make it work so it's oiled correctly you know um we'll get so many to-go orders from phone calls or uber eats or doordash that i mean we have to figure out a system who rings them in who puts them together like which, do we have someone to do that which like, parking spots do we mark so nobody yeah, sits yeah in? so i mean which i'm parked in by the way right now so that's it we're telling you <laughs> no i i think like that's the whole point is like you have to be able to think outside the box you, you you can't be set in your ways. You have to look at the whole big picture and how is this not going to just affect us today, but how does this affect us tomorrow? So you really have to think through it. And as you have more and more experiences, you think through it a little bit faster, mm. you know, but also involve your team. Like you want as much input as you possibly can. Ultimately, you're going to make the decision and you're going to make the most educated, best decision for you, your investors, the restaurant and, and, and all the people that work there because they all depend on it. Mm. It's, 
you know, you're responsible for everybody that works there. Yeah, we, we and can, all their families. Yeah, we 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 kind of uh, skipped over or hovered over the the type of uh, partnership agreement that you've set up, uh, or maybe it was in the the previous restaurants. Um, can you say that acronym, the acronym one more time for me? The BB the the private placement memorandum. That's what it was. Uh, so you set up like a, a we set up an LTD, but you can set up whatever company. It has to do with how you present um, what you're. Uh, if you're asking for money from people, um, it basically is proving that they're a um, intelligent investor because it used to be with blue sky laws. If you're going to, it's, it's not, it's a private offering is what you're doing. And the example that was given to me by my lawyer was, well, Scott, I mean, if you have grandma over here and she's only got like, you know, $30,000 $30,000 and you're asking for 25 of it and she doesn't understand the risk. Well, that's taking advantage, mm. you know, and they can come back and sue you. So you need to have an accredited investor. Accredited investor is someone who's worth a million dollars or has made $200. I don't know if it's changed now is $200,000 for um, two years with the anticipation of making it for the next year as an individual or as a couple 300 um, excluding real estate. I think like primary home or something like that. So the idea was, is that, the individual that has this has enough to lose and that they're not going to be, you know, detrimentally, detrimentally yeah. like affected by a loss and they need to be aware of all the risks. So it's, it's something that you put in place to not only protect yourself later down the road to in case things don't work out and you get sued because people aren't getting their money back, but also to protect the interest of your investors to put that place in there. Yeah. Well, first off, you don't want to take advantage of anyone. No. Right. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate with everybody that's been a partner with me. They've been wonderful. Um, but you don't want to just take from anyone. You got to be careful what you wish for, mm. right? Um, and, you know, you need to communicate well and be honest. Mm. I mean, that's all there is to it is, is as long as you communicate and you're honest with, with your group, um, look, they knew any business. They know the risk that they're getting into. They're betting on you that that at least for me, I felt like they're betting on the fact that if anybody is going to give it their all, we don't know if it's going to work or not. Scott is, and he's going to do everything in his power to make it work. Chef and Scott. that's all we can do. <laughs> Chef Scott, is there anything we haven't discussed up to this point? I've loved this conversation, but if there's anything that you were hoping to bring to the surface, anything that you haven't gotten out that you want to get out, now's the time to do it before we go to the speed round. Uh, not too much. I mean, other than the fact that like we morphed and me and my wife are, our uh, company fruition hospitality morphed into this hospitality management company that invests and, and partners with and, and helps run everything from cap fast casual to hotels. Um, how many projects are you involved with right now? We have two, we have another one in the works, um, that hopefully will come to fruition. There you go. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we, we don't ever want to overextend ourselves and it needs to be the right kind of situation because we've always felt, and we're looking at the fact that, um, our reputation is all we have. So it's our brand mm-hmm. and we need to have a good fit. So, so that's why we've been able to do the projects that take so, take so much time. So I'm curious, um, you, you identify yourself as a management group. How's a management group separate from say like a restaurant, like a typical restaurant group? Are you not in, like, what, like what's the difference there? Sa- the same thing. Okay. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's same thing. So we manage, operate, partner with and everything they're different roles so like if you invested that has nothing to do with who runs the restaurant we when we invest or are part of or have you know stake in it we're looking for 
pretty much full control. And, and the reason is, is given obviously certain parameters, but the idea is that, um, if you're not in full control, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in a situation. Um, and we consider ourselves experts yeah. in the field, and hopefully that's why we're in the position to do it. I think this is like the, the future of restaurants, uh, <clears throat> personally. I, I don't see how you could really s- scale and be a significant operation without partners today because of how competitive how competitive it's getting, especially in bigger cities like Dallas. Because uh, you've got a lot of players, and they all are, you know, they have big money behind them, they have partnerships behind them. So I think that you're going to see a lot of people who have proven themselves successful in the past uh, building these, these management groups or restaurant groups where they're really just creating opportunity for other younger driven people that have mm-hmm. what it takes. Right. And like, Hey, like you guys got the drive, you got the energy, you got the, the passion, you got the skill. We have the experience and, and the know-how like let's get together and let me create opportunity for you. And it's kind of where I see the industry going. Yeah, no, I mean, I think like you start off as a cook and you think, you know, this takes up my whole day at the line. And the next thing you know, you're a sous chef and you have like three or four people underneath you and you're like, Oh my goodness, this whole thing. And then the next thing you know, you're a chef and now you've got like all the sous chefs and all these people and you're like how much, you know, and your day is not cooking the same way as it was. It's more management and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, there to run a restaurant. Yes. You have the day to day operations and the shift, but that's like 10% of it. Mm. There's like 90% of all this other stuff that, no one ever taught you. No one ever taught you about in culinary school or whatever school you went to um, that goes into running a business. And fortunately or unfortunately, I think fortunately, a restaurant has everything that all businesses have. We have shipping and receiving. We have buying, purchasing. We have marketing. We have real estate. We have everything. You know, so um, there's not one aspect of business other than maybe some medical profession that I can think of that we we don't do. Mm. Although we do cut and, you know, freeze and and sear just like they do. So I think there's a you know, we do this business incorporates everything. It's a service business, but it also has production and manufacturing. So. So Restaurant Unstoppable's mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So I want to start asking this question more often. How have you transformed since, what was it, 2003 when you graduated or you got involved? Or uh, 2000. 2000, 2000, that's what it was. So how have you transformed over these 19 years? Who are you today versus you were then? I'm probably a lot calmer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think that, um, again, it's the same, the same thing that I started with is that um, work ethic is everything and integrity is everything. Um, and if you have those two things, um, you may not have the most talent, you may not have the best palate, you may not have X, Y, Z, but you're setting yourself up for more success, Beautiful. more chances of success, more opportunities. I've loved this conversation. We're going to take one more break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out a fast speed round. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. 
these websites have them and it's because they're going to bento box to get the work done and not only will bento box leave a lasting impression with your guests but bento box websites come with hospitality focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online with bento box you can easily update menus promote events share press sell gift cards take catering orders and book private events directly from your website bento box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most your restaurant bring your restaurants hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. And we're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Work ethic. What is your biggest weakness? Procrastination. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Are they passionate about what they're doing? How do you find out they're passionate? Uh, I think it, you know, first you ask them, you know, what book they read or what really got them into this industry. And usually people's eyes light up if they're excited about something. If it's kind of monotone, maybe it's just a job to them. They, you need to be excited about what you're doing. What is your biggest challenge today? Uh, staffing management. What is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? Integrity. Mm, I like that one. And what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within your four walls, but not common within the industry. Um, I think it's pretty common that people need to be educated in what they're serving. I think that um, you also want to learn how to connect with your guests. I think that um, you're looking to um, have them have a unique experience and there's a personal touch to it. How do you, is, is there like a, a trick or a way that you explain how we should be connecting with our guests? How do you teach your people how to do that? Um, I mean, I think you talk about different things or things that they would, you know, click on. For me, it was uh, when guests came in talking about, you know, baseball, going to the Rangers game. Oh, you like baseball, you know, like different than, um, Making it personal. Yeah, it's a the personal experience. Everything should be personal. Got you. Uh, what is one book that's a must-read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Hmm. Um, Lessons of Excellence. Hmm. What's your big lesson from that? That's the Charlie Charter book, right? I mean, I, I remember, like, at least for me, because I was in the back and my wife was, you know, front of the house, was how that um, there was a guest experience where uh, – a guest was not getting along with the, the captain or whatever. And what they immediately did was remove that captain from the situation, bring someone else in. So sometimes you're, you're fighting an uphill battle that you're not going to win and you need to change the scenery to make it more in your favor and get that negativeness out. May, probably not even that person's fault, you know, or even if it is, doesn't matter it, to create that fresh, like, Hey, we care and someone else will be taking care of you to, yeah. to fix the situation. I can't help but think of Danny Myers uh, words. I, I don't know where I picked this up. I'm pretty sure it's from him that it doesn't matter who's right. And sometimes we get caught up, doesn't, so caught up on like, who's right that we lose sight of what's really matters. Is, is this person going to leave happy? Right? right. So like just remove that negative situation and just solve the problem. Make people happy. Uh, you're going to add to that. No, that no, um, absolutely. Like you can't, it, it does not matter who's right or wrong because, I mean, when you look at it from our vantage point, you know, most of the time we're right. And if you look at it from the customer's vantage point, they're always right. But there is that saying, the customer's always right. So just let it go and just figure out how you can smooth the situation right. and, and, and make them feel appreciated. And, and you know what? 
listen to what they're saying because there might be a little bit of truth and you need to learn from it and get better from it. Beautiful. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Well enough or often enough. Um, pay attention to the details. You know, whether it's having a bathroom clean or, you know, greeting guests. I think it's just the details. It's it's the things that are that are important in making sure that the guest has a personalized, you know, good experience. Some of the prerequisites, I feel mm-hmm. like, like having, you know, good food and being paid attention to. What is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that has had a huge impact on operations, efficiency, communication, uh, profitability, anything along those lines? Uh, Master Excel. Um, and there's good programs out there to look at the data as far as the numbers go because the numbers don't lie. People do. Can you re- recommend any? Um, well, we use at the different restaurants we've used um, Aloha and Micros. They have good programming. Avero um, has some good stuff um, to take a look at um, how things break down. Um, but again, some of it is you know unique to each restaurant. So we I build um, huge workbooks that um, really kind of dive into um, all aspects of the financials as well as for here, a barbecue restaurant, a barbecue calculator. So I can predict exactly how much barbecue we need each day in the amounts, which is pretty important for a barbecue place. Yeah. Doesn't don't have to do it so much at some other restaurants, but it is ridiculously important here. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Sure. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? The three things you know to be true. Uh, for the industry or just in life? I think it's one and one. <laughs> it's the yeah. same, man. I would say you, know, you need to know love. Um, I would say... You need to work harder than anybody else, have work ethic, and you need to have integrity or morals and ethics. Those are the three most important things. Awesome. Chef Scott, I've loved this conversation. It's really been a pleasure sitting here uh, sharing your story. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator, somebody you really admire and believe would make a great guest Mm. mentor on the show? Restaurant operator that I know. I think you should talk to Alberto Lombardi. I'd love that. You know, I think he'd be a good person. Um, I know some chefs that would be pretty cool that um, I believe are partners in their restaurants. Jay Chastain here in town at the Charles. And Charles would be kind of interesting to talk to as well. Beautiful. Both those guys. I'm adding so, them to my list. Look up. I'm coming yeah. after you. And let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you if we want to maybe come join your team, ask you some questions, or uh, I don't know. You got a little restaurant organization you're starting, group you're starting. Uh, maybe we're interested in that. Yeah, sure. You can um, email me at scott at fruitionhospitality.com, and you can check out our website at fruitionhospitality.com. Beautiful. Again, Chef Scott Gottlich, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks. Cheers. There it is, another one wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Chef Scott Gottlich, thank you so much. A really great conversation. I like this one a lot. The big takeaways for me today, the first and foremost, is you got to create your own opportunities. Opportunities don't come to you, and that's one thing that... I saw today, uh, you got to go out there and that's, that's what chef Scott did in his life. He went out there and he made things happen. He, he was the trigger. He triggered his own opportunities by reaching out to people, by offering to give before he got in, uh, by just 
surrounding himself with great people and being a person of value. And you guys can do the same thing. I think the other big takeaway in today's conversation is uh, really being mindful and not uh, thinking or reacting based on emotion and not letting your your emotions drive your business decisions. And uh, that's so important to, you know, when you find your emotions getting involved, take a few steps back, uh, assess the situation and ask yourself, what could I have done differently? What, what, what other variables other than maybe this person who's triggering my emotion might be playing in on uh, why whatever happening is going on, you know, like, And when you step back and you do discover what it was that actually is causing this person to make a mistake or whatever it is, that's your cue. That's your cue to create a system process or procedure or or to amend that system process or procedure to make sure these mistakes don't happen again. Don't let your emotions control your decisions. It will not end well. All right, now is when I remind you, please keep those five-star reviews coming. They help so much with the ranking and validating my hard work here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, Sign up for our email list. The community is growing, and I would love for you to be a part of it. You can stay plugged in, never miss an episode, and just find out you know what's going through my mind what what direction restaurant unstoppable is going in and more importantly have an influence i listen to you guys i want you to influence the future of restaurant unstoppable so i need to hear from you and the best way to hear from me or from you know to engage with restaurant unstoppable is on that that email list and then lastly guys uh Please help me spread the word about Restaurant Unstoppable. The the best compliment in the world is sharing this sucker with a friend. Let's 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 grow this thing. Let's take it to the next level. Let's transform the industry. All right, that's it for today. Thanks so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.